Okay, well, good morning, Be Free Dover. Uh, as, Nick, as Nick said, this morning we're going to be looking at our church denomination statement on the, on the human condition. And uh, so we're actually, we're going to read it again. Uh, so if, if we can pull it up on the screen. And uh, we'll read it slow just so we can sit with some of the words that they've chosen. Um, and then we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit this morning together. So the human condition, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image. But they sinned when tempted by Satan in union with Adam. Human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this morning and this chance to uh, be together as a church uh, to continue to, to look at um, what our church holds true about really important issues like you, the Bible, last week, this week, humanity. Uh, Lord, we, we know that these things are uh, really, really important. In every generation, they've been important, uh, and it's certainly important today uh, to have a firm grasp on what you say about these issues. Um, this morning, Lord, help us to uh, really look at what you say about us, uh, even if it's hard to hear, uh, even if it hits us the wrong way. Allow us to continue to learn as a people to submit to you and to what you say about life and not what we say about life. So all, give us all that humility and that obedience to trust you and your character and your goodness to continue to believe what you say, obey you, and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last, we, we, last week, we looked at the Bible and our church's view on the Bible, and this week, human condition. Um, I mentioned last week that in our cultural moment, the Bible is, as it always has been, under attack from different entities, and so it's critical that we understand as a church how to view the Bible. Uh, even if it's unpopular, even if it's what our culture would say archaic or controversial. In a very similar way, uh, the idea of, of the, nature, the nature or condition of humanity uh, is, is very much uh, under attack in our world, uh, very confusing, a lot of mismessages. Um, in fact, I think so much so, and especially with social media and constant barrage of information on what to think of humanity and, and uh, where are we to go, I think it's, it's honestly easy to settle into a view of humanity, even as Christians, where we may not want to take a firm stand on it. Uh, we may not want to dive into those deep waters of what it means to be human, what we believe the Bible teaches us and God says about what humans are, um, what our problems are, what our solution is. Uh, there are many people telling us what the problems are and the solutions are, 
to humanity's ills. But is it what God says? Is it what the Bible says? Um, honestly, it can get us into a lot of trouble today in our culture. Uh, what we hold true about what the Bible teaches us about human condition. So I think it's easy to step back from the discussion and have more of a, eh, does it really matter? Uh, I'm not going to go there. It's too complicated. It's too raw. It's too emotional. There's too many family members involved, too many friends, too many coworkers, too many neighbors. I don't want to be seen as the rigid Christian person. Um, but I think it's dangerous to have that perspective on the human condition, that it doesn't matter, that it's irrelevant, uh, that you can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, and in the end, it's all going to be okay. Um, I think it's really dangerous to do that because I think what we discover as we see this morning is that the way we view humankind has a direct link to our view of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, how we view humanity is going to have a direct correlation to how we view why Jesus died and why Jesus rose from the dead. So I would say that our view and where we get our view of the condition of man is absolutely central to our faith. Because I think every Christian would say that the death and resurrection is central to the Christian faith, I would argue, well, if that's true, then your condition of man has to also be central to your faith. As any engineer will tell you, uh, if you get the drawings and modeling wrong on a building's foundation, the building will still go up. But what happens with extreme weather or extreme conditions over time? What will happen to that building? It's going to crumble. It's going to crack. Or as any teacher will tell you, if you get a child's IEP wrong, they're still going to be part of school. They're still going to participate in the class. Uh, but they're not going to get the accurate and helpful supports they need. And so therefore, they're actually not going to flourish. And in the same way, if we don't understand accurately our view of the human condition, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to make absolutely no sense. So as our statement mentioned, uh, we're going to look at this first, and Genesis 1, 26 through 27 will be on the screen here. The first thing we see, and the first thing the Bible teaches us, in our statement of faith and in the Bible, is that humanity was created in God's image. And so, let's first look at this, and I think, uh, oftentimes, Christians, we need to be reminded of this too. I hear a lot of language in evangelical circles that we are just sinners. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's what we are. we are. We are sinners and in need of God's grace. And I would say that is absolutely true. And we're going to get into that in the second part of this sermon. But I think we miss the image of God. 
I think Christians can miss it and its implications, and I think the non-believing world doesn't understand what that means, that we're created in God's image. Because Christians and the non-believing world are all still equally created in God's image, according to Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the animals of the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see this idea of image. We're made in the image of God. Interestingly, this is where you see the Trinity first appear. We're made in the image of the Trinity. Notice the plural language here. Let us make human beings in our image. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in communion creating humanity in their plural but unified image. We also see a fascinating word that we'll look at a little bit called likeness. NLT in 27 has the word image. Other translations have the word likeness. You see it interchange between these two words depending on uh, the translation that you use. Now in our day, if you polled the average Dover person or Seacoast person uh, who wasn't very familiar with Genesis or with the church's view on humanity, uh, I, think, I think what you would get if you ask someone, you know, what is the, the condition of man, what most people say is, well, in general, people are good, but there are some people who are really bad. You guys ever had conversations like this? So some are good and some are really bad. There, there tend to be these, these two distinct categories, and you always wonder, well, I wonder where they think I fit in, uh, in, that, in those categories. I um, wonder where my neighbor, you guys ever wonder where your neighbor thinks, what category you're in? Now, this does not reflect what it means to be made in God's image, that some people are generally good, kind of, and some people are, are just bad. that tends to come from a pretty human view of goodness. And so I think if you push a little deeper on well, what do you mean by most people are pretty good and, and some people are really bad, I think you would start to get some pretty minimalistic standards. So they would say things like, well, you're a good person if you just leave people alone. Is that a classic New England statement or what? I work at UNH in a campus ministry and I, I, t- I talk to so many people from outside of New England. Uh, and they're like, man, it is so different here. People here just want to be left alone. And where I'm from, that is not the case. But in our context, that is a high value. So, if you're a good neighbor who leaves other people alone, you would be considered a pretty good person. Or, if you walk down the street and, and someone says, uh, and if you, you make quick eye contact and you say something like, how are you? And they say, good. And they say, how are you? And you say, good. Then you've met the standard of you're a pretty good person because you've responded nicely. And in New Englanders, we don't want to say anything beyond good. Um, I've talked about that before, I think, in a sermon. But uh, 
Uh, I think that's another statement. Or someone who works hard, works nine to five, uh, that would be in our culture, especially in New England, that's the status of you're a pretty good person. You work nine to five, you pay your taxes, you pay your bills. Um, the problem, and then of course people who don't do those things, oh, the other one I forgot that's essential in New England, you have to vote for the right party too. And so as long as you do that, then you're a good person as well in our, con- in our cultural moment. It's very important. The problem with that all of those categories, is that this, it falls really short of the goodness of God that he's talking about. It, these are all human standards of what it means to be good, what it means to be bad, and this is not reflecting what it's talking about with being made in God's image. When it talks about being made in God's image, God gives every human the capacity for good, the capacity to reflect his characteristics in the world. And I think he gives different people different, more grace in different aspects of these characteristics. So when you think about characteristics like love, characteristics like justice, characteristics like bravery, characteristics like working hard, characteristics like gentleness, kindness, generosity, characteristics like joy. These are things that that actually come from and are defined by God himself. He is all of those things and more to their fullness. And when he makes us in his image, he gives us not the fullness of these things, that would make us God, but he gives us an aspect of of these things. He gives us a reflection of these characteristics and we can then show in the world as his representatives. And why does he do that? Why does he, why does he create all of us in those ways? It's so that we can show what he's like to the world around us. In other words, we're showing each other what God is like as we live our lives. So when someone who's not a Christian and you're like, you know what, I, I feel like I've met many people like this. You feel like you meet someone who's not a Christian, but they're way more joyful than you. You guys ever have people like that? They're way more joyful. You're like, I just want to be around that person. I pray for them to come to have faith. And, and so I ask, what is that? Yeah, sure, people say temperament, Myers-Briggs, blah, blah, blah. But, but no, it, God has graced them, whether or not they follow him at this point, because they're in his image, that joy that you see is a reflection of the joy of the Father. It's not perfect. It's not the joy of God fully, but you're seeing aspects of who God is in another person. How about someone who's generous? I know people who are not believers who are incredibly generous. Do you guys know people like that? Where does that come from? Well, they make a lot of money. Their parents taught them well. Eh, no. The deeper reason these people are generous, no matter where they are in their faith, is that God is generous. They're reflecting him. They're imaging him in the world. This is why value, human life, the whole, con- the whole big thing going on right now about the value of human life, this is where value of human life comes from. 
And do we see how important human life is? The more you start to realize, oh my gosh, humans aren't just kind of good people or bad people. They're actually made in the image of God and are given part of his likeness, his beauty, his generosity, his love. They're given those things to reflect it into the world. That's an unbelievable value that he's given humanity. He hasn't just said, oh, you're kind of good, so you have value because you do your job or you pay your taxes. That wouldn't be very much value. But because every person we meet today is made in the image of God and somehow reflects him, whether they know it or not, that makes human life worth fighting for. That makes life for those living and those yet born unbelievably worth the fight. That life happens, that it's valued. Anywhere Christianity's gone, the value of human life has increased throughout the history of the church. And it's because of this core doctrine that we are made in God's image, and therefore we treat humans with care, with gentleness, regardless of their faith. We cross the aisle as Christians to care for them. There's a letter from an old general in the Roman times who said, how the heck do we get rid of these Christians? They're popping up everywhere. And one of the field lieutenants wrote back and said, they're too kind to people and we're not. We can't stop them. When they're sick, we think it's a curse from the gods, so we retreat. Christians go in and, and work to heal. Now, we know that even though humans are created in this way, and that everyone we meet, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, have this incredible value, dignity, worth, because they're actually imaging God whether they know it or not. Even the people that bother you the most image God and reflect him. Is that hard for us to understand sometimes and to grasp? <clears throat> Even though we know that's how humans are designed and created, we know that's not the whole story right? We know as we, if you live life one day, you quickly realize there's more to this story going on. It can't just be that humanity is created in God's image and that's it. Because if that was the case, if we all just behaved as God intended with his incredible characteristics of beauty and perfection and righteousness, how do we think this world would operate if we all live to the fullness of the image of God in us and nothing hindered that? How would the world look? How would this church look if we lived that way perfectly? Would you want to live there in a world like that where the image of God is all that people lived out of? I think we would. But we know that there's another part of this story. There's an intruder, an invasion into this story of humanity that the Bible also teaches. But I think it's critical to remember this idea that God's image is still, even though sin has entered the world and entered humanity, the image of God is still in us as people. So we're now going to read Romans 7. 21 through 24. It should be up on the screen, too. Okay. Um, 
The second part now is that humanity is sinful and under God's wrath. And this is Paul writing as he's, essentially what he's doing in Romans 7, is he's doing a deep dive into his inner life. He's looking deeply into himself and he's writing about what he sees as a Christian, what dynamics are going on. So this is Paul as a Christian. This is not Paul as a non-Christian. That's important to remember as we read this. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life? Am I in the right? Whoopsie, sorry. It was, my, it was cut off. Sorry. Back to 21. I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. I'm going to stop there. Can anyone relate to that? You look inside and you're like, Paul, you're right. As a Christian, you're right. There is a power within me that I hate. Can anyone relate to that? This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Christian Paul, this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. The most probably, (laughs) the most famous, well-known, one to be modeled after, Paul is writing that this sin in him is still making him a slave at times. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So we're getting a fuller picture of what's going on. We're not fully there yet. We have good news on the way, but the the picture of humanity is starting to get more full. We see that we're made in God's image. We all have this capacity to do good, to image God with these incredible characteristics we've talked about. We also have a huge problem inside of us. It's sin. It's invaded our life. Paul, Paul sees it as an intruder, which I, I love that language. What Paul's saying is there's this part of him, this image of God, this new creation in him that wants to do good, that wants to follow God, that wants to live out the image of God that he's been given as a gift. He wants to do good in the world. But there's this invader in him. There's this entity. There's this power in him that he can't shake fully. He can overcome it over time. He's grown a lot. But he can't fully shake it in this body. I always use the image when I'm talking to to people about how I describe sin in us is, is an illustration. And I think I've used it here before. But I have found nothing more visually helpful And that is, this screen right here, would any of you in this church, as I'm talking, as the service is going on, plug in your inner life onto that screen as church is going on so that everyone around here can see exactly what's going on inside of you? Images, words, desires, 
impulses, memories? Would anyone volunteer to put all of that right there on the screen so that we can see it? No one's allowed to comment on it, but we're going to see it. (laughs) To me, that is what sin is. It's this entity, it's like a cancer, a spiritual cancer. If you look at a cancer patient, what you see is this foreign, unwanted substance that attaches itself to different parts of your body. And over time, if not cured, begins to take more and more of your body, killing the body's functionality, suffocating it. To me, that's what sin is in a spiritual sense. You can't see it like cancer, but all of us know it's there. It's in us. It affects us. It troubles us. And how does God react to sin? How does, how does God feel about sin? Well, we mentioned before these characteristics of God in, uh, when he made us in his image. And the Bible talks a lot about different characteristics of God, but, but some of the key ones that we know about from Scripture is that God is a God of purity. He's a God of perfection. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of perfect justice. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of love. There's nothing more beautiful than the Ten Commandments. In, in, the, first, in, the, in the early uh, Far East, nations were jealous of the Ten Commandments of Israel because there was no law like it. There was no law like it. It was beautiful. In other words, if the Ten Commandments were lived out as a people, can you imagine how good life would be? Can you imagine that? No, God is not some dark character of a story. Someone to be kept at a distance. Someone who we shouldn't trust. No, God's character as revealed throughout the Bible is one of unparalleled, unmatched beauty, love, joy, perfection. Someone we want to be with. Just look at Christ as he lives his life. Would you want to be around him? Would you want him in this room? So therefore, when you have something like sin that causes death, causes destruction, causes murder, causes pain, causes divorce, causes agony, causes war, causes disease, causes illness, causes all kinds of chaos in the world, how is God going to react to that if he is this perfect being that we read about in Scripture? Well, I would use a, a human analogy to answer that. If your child was in a relationship with someone and the relationship was just full of sin, full of pain, they were being abused, they were being hurt, what would you as a father or a mother do in that scenario? The child that you've raised, cared for, protected, sacrifice. Does anyone have to sacrifice raising kids? You've poured your life into them. How would you react if they're in a relationship like that? I'll speak for myself. I would run into that relationship with reckless abandon and end it. 
in a profound way. I would not sit back and watch it. Sit back and let it happen. I love my kids too much, and I love the idea of them being in a relationship that, where they're treated the way they deserve to be treated. I love that idea too much to sit back and let a relationship like that happen with my children. I hope you don't read about me in the news, but it could happen. And I'm serious about that. I wouldn't mess around. In a much better way, <laughs> I think God is the same way. If we had a God who sat back indifferently to sin, sat back indifferently to brokenness and darkness and all this stuff on the screen that we talk about, what kind of God would that be? Is that a God you'd want to be around, who's passive, indifferent, doesn't really care? I think deep down, all of us want a God who would run into that and make it right, who would do something, it would stir something up in him. Even as I share about a, not even a real scenario with my kids, I start getting stirred up. I, I get like, I'm ready to go. Something gets stirred up in me, and I think that's healthy. I think that's right. And this, to me, is how God's wrath comes out in the world. You see it in the Old Testament especially. He's patient. He's patient. Sin. Death. Destruction. Adultery. Idolatry. He's patient. He calls them back. He calls them back. And eventually gets to a point where God gets stirred up and his wrath gets poured out. Because he doesn't want sin to reign in our lives or in the world. He wants righteousness and goodness, kindness, Love, mercy, those are the things God wants to rule in the world. And so as a result, the, the, the obvious conclusion is if sin is within humanity, it's going to stir up God's wrath. So what's the solution? What's the good news? We've seen we're made in God's image. We've seen we're sinful and under God's wrath. Is there hope? Is there a solution to this problem of sin, this problem of separation from God, this problem of his wrath? We saw it in the statement, and we see it further on here in Romans 7, that Jesus Christ is the solution to our human condition. Jesus Christ is a solution to our human condition. Romans 27, 25 to 8, 1. You see Paul, as you remember, we can put up on the screen. In verse 24, there's this very uh, profound statement that he makes. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by death and sin? Paul was at the second section of our sermon. He was, <laughs> he was living in that place where as we just saw in the previous section, <laughs> there's this reality of sin. There's this reality of God's wrath. There's this reality that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so Paul is literally calling out, who frees me from this? I can't free myself. Who frees me? In verse 25, he says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. 
But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Verse 8, 1. Many people's favorite verse in the Bible, for good reason. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So how do we come out from under God's wrath and displeasure? How do we become free from the sin that strangles us on the inside? How do we come into God's presence and live there? I think it's starting to come into focus why Jesus had to become one of us as a real human. Not a fake human, not partially human, not a spirit being. Fully God, fully man. I think it's starting to come into focus why the incarnation had to happen. Someone had to live the perfect human life that fully pleased God, fully lived out the image of God in humanity, perfectly, completing the law fully, did not stir up God's wrath ever, and lived perfectly in his presence all their days. This life had to be lived completely free of sin, a life worthy of earning eternal life with God. Jesus is the only sinless human ever to live. He is perfectly human, perfectly God, who lived fully in God's presence all his days without any separation, not under the wrath of God because there was no sin. Jesus is the one human who would volunteer to say, in his earthly life, yes, I will put my image on there because there's nothing there but the perfect, beautiful image of God. And no one else can say that. No one else can live that way. Until the end. Until the end of his life. And what happened at the end of his life? Well, sin did invade Jesus. Didn't it? We just celebrated it. This past April. Sin did invade Jesus. Except it wasn't his sin. Whose sin was it that invaded him? All of ours. The world's sin. The world's sin, all the stuff we're ashamed of, actually invaded Jesus and he willingly took it upon himself. As you see the drama of the cross play out, you see some things start to happen as sin invaded Jesus' life. Peter tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And as his, our sin invaded Jesus, as Paul says, this invader that's waging war has now found the perfect Son of God. As our sin invaded Jesus, two things happened on the cross. One, there was separation from the Father. The separation that we experience as a result of our sin, Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then third, we see God's wrath come down on the cross on his Son. 
Our sin killed Christ. He was buried. And on the third day at sunrise, Jesus Christ rose. And with it, our sin, our death, and God's judgment was fully overcome for us. Now, when we receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts and give Jesus Christ the throne of our life as Lord and Savior, our sin, our death, and God's judgment is overcome as a free gift. Every day of our Christian life, our broken human condition is being undone by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And while our brokenness is not going to be fully undone in this world, the mystery, of course, is that in this body as Christians, as Paul says in Romans 7, we still have sin in us. But the separation from the Father, His wrath is gone. And there is a day coming when humanity is going to be restored fully to what God intended, that image of God without blemish, without sin, There is a day coming, soon. It was just celebrated here yesterday, actually. Jesus was the first fruits, as Paul tells us, to rise from the dead. What that means is that we are going to follow him in our own bodily resurrection from the dead. And on that day, with our new bodies in eternity, we will no longer have an invader of sin within, a sense of God's distance, or any experience of his wrath. This is our hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you that you have made us in your image. Um, Lord, we know that in spite of that, sin has come in this world. Um, But Lord, thank you that our hope, the answer, is in Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you that he, on the cross, took our sin in his body, experienced the separation of the Father, the wrath of God for us. Thank you that he rose again from the dead so that we too can have new life, a new experience of what it means to be human. Thank you that our own resurrection is happening soon where we will no longer experience any of the effects of sin. We long for that day and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.